everybody. I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. Welcome, Songtown. I'm Clay Mills here with a very special guest today. I'm going to tell you who he is in one second. But before I do, just want to run down this incredible list of artists that he's written and produced for, the likes of Panic at the Disco, One Direction, Katy Perry, Ringo Starr, Carol King, Death Leopard, Blink-182. I could go on and on in the words of Stephen Bishop, but I'm not going to because I want to talk to this guy. Let's bring on Sam Hollander. Hey, Clay, I want to say <laughs> it's very early for a Stephen Bishop reference, but I'm always here for it. Uh, you give me any Bish, the day is headed in the right direction. So thank you, man. Thanks. I figured that would that would um, get the day started off differently. It worked. I, lo I, lo I love me some Bish, so that's great. One of my favorites. Excellent. Well, we're, Sam, we have a unique community because we're basically just a worldwide community of aspiring songwriters. And I'm sure they would love to hear your story, how you got started. I want to talk about your book. I've got it here. 21 Hit Wonder, Flopping My Way to the Top of the Charts. This is the holy and grail. So that... This is the holy grail of songwriting <laughs> failure. This is where it begins. So. Well, I mean, first off, I mean, as songwriters, we got to have unique titles. I would never think of a 21-hit songwriter going, flopping my way to the top. So that got my attention, like, right off the bat. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know, how this book was born, you know. I, um, you know, my parents were both uh, really artistic and really interesting. You know, my dad was a modern dancer who became an uh, architect and a professor of architecture, and he was this brilliant, brilliant heavy cat. My mom... My mom was just badass, man. She was a uh, she's an interior decorator in the in the in New York in the 1970s, and she uh, climbed her way through from the bottom and just clawed and clawed and clawed. Eventually, did apartments for Mick Jagger and Yves Saint Laurent, all these Studio 54 sort of uh, luminaries. And uh, when I was a little kid, you know, it's funny. Uh, I had a very strange experience. I uh, Andy Warhol actually used to babysit me as a little kid which is very strange and true. So um, my mom's yeah. partner in her firm was Jed uh, Johnson, who was Andy Warhol's life partner. So for a moment in time, they sort of would saddle me with Andy, you know, as like, you know, just uh, because they had to, you know, scour the city and they needed to keep me away from record shops because the only thing that I dug were records. I spent every day of my life in record shops as a little guy, flea markets getting five and 10 cent records and just amassing a war chest. And, you know, at night I'd listen to Casey Case and the countdown and mark all the chart positions and everything and you know i came into this industry in a very strange way because i entered it truly as a colossal fan without really a definable skill you know i was in bands in high school i did you know i was known for writing really bad teenage poetry very angsty teenage poetry slam poetry all this stuff and yeah. you know i was very verbal but i didn't know what that would uh manifest into and truthfully as a student of songwriting always because i'm a nerd i uh i grew up i you know i wanted to emulate the brill building right i wanted to i wanted yeah. to be uh jeff barry or carol or you know ellie greenwich or you know jerry goffin or any of these people barry and cynthia i really wanted to you know bring that to my generation and i had no means of doing it and when i started out you know as you know in the 80s there were very few blueprints for songwriters, right? You know, you had technical instructional books, but you didn't have anything that really got to the essence of what it is to actually sort of manifest a career. And 
So I started out with a, uh, 15 years of missteps and, you know, I had my first hit at 35 years of age and that's somewhat unheard of in the music business. I know Phil Galston wrote Save the Best for Last at 42, but for a guy like me, you know, I spent 15 years failing. I dropped out of uh, NYU. I got a record deal very young. And at that time I was a rapper. And as I always mm. say, I was a pioneer rapper because I labeled myself alternative rap very early on because my music was so terrible. But I figured if I called it alternative, <laughs> you know, who hates on anything alternative? Alternative gospel, yeah. I'm going to listen to it. You know, alternative, you know, bluegrass, edgier, I dig it. You know, anything alternative, I'm a fan of. So I went with that mantra. I got a record deal very young. Uh, my record came out at 21 on Select Records, which was a division of Atlantic. And I was dropped at 23. I was on the streets again. And wow. I spent the next 12 years clawing my way through this industry. And, you know, um, I rapped uh, with a German accent next because I figured if I couldn't do it <laughs> with an American accent, maybe I'd take on a, a German sort of a German sort of vocal hybrid and was rapping over dance tracks and had a song in a Whoopi Goldberg movie where she coaches the New York Knicks. You can hear me, my, me and my German accent. So yeah. I think that would be cultural appropriation or something, but I did, I was a pioneer in it. Um, <laughs> I think you were searching to find yourself. <laughs> yeah, man, I did techno. Uh, I did everything, but truthfully, all I really wanted to do was craft song in a traditional sense. I'm a traditionalist writer and I really wanted to just get in a room with artists and craft their narrative. Growing up in the 80s in the MTV generation, as you know, there were stars, you know, and I believed in yeah. stars. When you grow up in a time of Michael and Prince and, and Madonna yeah. and, you know, and Morrissey and Michael Stipe and, you know, all these, um, these superstars at the front of the stage, I knew I wasn't one of them. So I was trying to use anything I could just to get behind the curtain because I had no ticket. I had no blueprint. And... It took me um, 13 years of failures. And what separates me from, I think, the bulk of the writers in this industry, one of the defining traits is that the level of failure that for 13 straight years where there was just no light. And, you know, I had, glim I had glimmers, right? Carol King got wind of a project that I had done. She, was, she came down the studio, really dug my writing and collaborated with me and my partner at the time, a man named Dave Shomer. And we wrote and produced uh, the last single she ever put out, title track of Love Makes the World, the album. Um, and we were writing against Babyface and David Foster and all these incredible writers. And it was the first time that I had ever been identified as competent, you know, and I was 29 and I thought that was life changing. And so that was great. I still couldn't get any room with any band or any singer songwriter because Kurt Cobain had come along and made the notion of the co-writer inherently uncool with bands, you know? So what I decided to do was create my own acts and I created um, a slew of acts over a two or three year period. And we got seven major label deals, which is also unheard of. And the first five yeah. weren't even released. And that's an incredible, remember pre-internet, pre-iTunes, it was a very different industry, right? And at that time, it was like uh, pilots on a TV network, you know, certain pilots were just write-offs that never went to network. Those were always my records. So by the age of uh, 34, it had completely dried up. And I spent that year doing drum programming on kids' bop records. Um, that was the highlight of that year. And not to take away anything because kids' bop records are great and they're great for kids, but you're, when you're just making the beats on a little SB12 drum machine, <laughs> you know, and you've blown every opportunity you've ever had to date, it's hard to reconcile. And I would pitch myself around town, but as a failed rapper, failed German rapper, failed 
dance music artist, failed techno artist, failed drum and bass artist, um, failed kids pop drum beat maker. You know, it was very hard to get through. And finally, um, right when I was at the very, very bottom and it had ended, I, you know, the phone was no longer being returned. I got a call from a man named Jonathan Daniel and we had become very close and he was a manager in the, in the East village. And we had all these cats in the East village who were starting to make noise. You know, there was uh, JJ Abrams was one of our really good friends. And then he became JJ Abrams, you know, he directs star Wars. But back then he was just like our guy. We sit and listen to music too. And Morgan Spurlock was this friend of ours who, you know, one day I ran into in the street and he'd eaten cheeseburgers for 30 days straight. And I said, why are you eating McDonald's for 30 days straight? He said, I'm filming it for a documentary. Uh, so I wrote the super size. Oh. Me wow. song. So if you ever watch Super Size Me, the song yeah. plays throughout the entire movie. I wrote that with Morgan, you know? So I was getting moments, but I still was never, um, there was nothing, there was no through line. And Jonathan Daniel called me up. He said, look, you know, I have a bunch of young bands that are beginning to happen. I have a scene and they're independent little bands. They're run out of a, a, dorm, uh, a kid who just graduated University of Florida named John Janik. He had a label called Fueled by Rum and he's running out of a dorm room at Gainesville. And I'm gonna need an adult in the room who really knows how to craft song. First project he gave me was, was $28,000 all in. That, include, uh, that included production, mastering, writing, mixing, and sample clearances if we use any samples. So I already knew that if I didn't call Kids Bop for more work, it was gonna be a really gruesome year, you know? And um, I made this record, I put everything I'd ever done into this record. And I made it with a, a man named Dave Katz who would really shape my future. We did tons of records together. And, you know, we had a number one hit. So of course it's the record right when I was at the very, very bottom that changed it all. And the funny thing about it was up to that point, I had failed a million times, but I wasn't repeating mistakes. I was finding new ways to fail, but I wasn't repeating mistakes. <laughs> and so yeah. at that point, I became a craftsman in the way I'd always hoped, in which I studied and studied and studied and studied. And I picked up all these writing tricks through the years, and I began all these writing exercises. And, you know, I began to take this um, as serious as anything I'd ever done in my life. I had to really, I knew that the deck was stacked against me because the writers who were, um, I was competing against for slots on records, the bulk of them had been artists who had had one or two hits at, at the front of a stage. And that's a lot sexier, as you know, to an artist, like somebody who's really been there, you know, hey, that person, you know, I, I grew up with that guy on MTV and now he's writing my songs. And I was this guy who nobody could even figure out. I was an anomaly. Like, who is this guy? Nothing has worked for him, blah, blah, blah. So what I did was I went back to creating bands again because now I began to understand how to write a song. So I created a band called Boys Like Girls uh, in Massachusetts, mm. and we had a smash with a song called Great Escape. We the Kings, Brandon in Florida, so smash called Check Yes Juliet. Worked in Metro Station, did Shake It. These are all big, big hits. And finally, I learned how to do it. It took me 35 years to write a good song. And then I actually, wow. um, I really locked it in. And the funny thing is, as time grew, you know, as, as, as hits began to mount and my currency began to mean something, at least in this business, I went back to my initial formula, which, I, which began with Carol King and collaborated with Nile Rogers and people like that in the front end of my career, which was, Every song and every project that I took on with a young artist, you know, some kid with a funny haircut, I was going to balance it writing with one of my idols, you know? 
And I was always, I made this commitment to myself 15 years ago that once, now that I've actually permeated this, I'm gonna take every single opportunity to learn from the greats and then learn from the kids and be a gen generational conduit between the two because there's wow. so many tricks to pick, pick up between both. And that's what I've done. So for every Panic of the Disco, I do Ringo Starr. For every, you know, um, Walk the Moon, I do Billy Idol. You know, I, you know, it doesn't matter. And so um, I've been able to live out my dream, which is just the most magical thing. But Clay, I got to tell you, man, you know, it's so competitive out there that, and I love this so much that I take steps that, you know, keep me in it that I think are really sort of um, at the kernel of sort of the, the little nugget that, that fuels the whole thing. What do I do? But between any set, before any session, I do three days out, I begin like copious amounts of homework, man. I go under the hood of the artist and I stalk them basically. I'm like this creepy stalker. But I'm going through every YouTube interview, every print interview. I'm trying to find little interstitial bits of wisdom. You know, I'm trying to find little pickup notes. You know, uh, humor, are they funny? Are they dry? Are they, you know? Um, where are they headed in their life? Where personal life? Where are they at? Single, married, happy, sad. Um, just historic. Yeah, you're saying, you're saying exactly the kinds of things that we teach our Songtown members about. Do your homework before you show up to. Write. Well, Clay, let me I tell mean, you, man. I get in a room with somebody, and it's imperative to me that I know infinitely more about them than they ever know about me. If I've done yeah. that in a collaborative setting, I think I've set myself up to win because I've respected the art of song and I've respected the artist. And since primarily the bulk of my career has been spent collaborating with the artists themselves, I want them to know that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a screenwriter and I'm trying to write the sequel to whatever they've done at any level. Right. And I'm trying to respect their craft and their art and I'm trying to, um, help their narrative and their journey and push it along. And I'm not trying to be the star, the face of it. I'm a background cat. I, you know, I'm a below the line guy in my own head always. But the notion is mm -hmm. I want to craft that movie that keeps it going, you know, and that's what gets me up in the morning. So yes, it's, it's really, it's putting that work in and it's also, it's writing exercises, man. You know, I learned this from a professional athlete many years ago, you know, who was, had been going through a hard time, um, in the NBA and shifted his regiment where he never took a day off for the rest of his career during the season. And what he did was he had wow. different disciplines, yoga, Pilates, meditation, swimming, stretching, blah, blah, blah. And once he applied that to his craft, he just had a hall of fame career. You know, it was a guy named Steve Nash. And I decided to try the same, uh, take the same approach to my songwriting. So, cause after you have some success and I know you know this, you know, after you have some success, uh, com complacency is somewhat inevitable because you begin to rely on tricks because right. you have certain tricks that got you across the line and you think, okay, those are going to go on forever. I can just keep, you know, you pulling from this little bag in your tools. But the problem is your tools have to expand rapidly. So I took the same approach where I started doing all these little uh, writing exercises I created for myself and I do them every day of the week you know one day it's going to be writing titles five titles then i cross i cross reference them with spotify and make sure there's a unique quality to them if it's a title that i've heard more than five times it gets thrown out if it's a title that was an iconic song i throw it out for the most part um mm -hmm. and the notion of that is i'm just trying to exercise the muscle it's like playing wordle every day you know i uh 
another day is just melody day. I pull out an acoustic and just try to come up with a melody. First instinctive melody on my head and then craft it a little bit and leave it as a voice note, record it. Third day is chorus day because I love popping the octave in my choruses and I have like certain tricks. So I just try to find that sweet spot and go for it. Fourth day, I write narrative poetry, you know? And I got to tell you something, I didn't even know what narrative poetry was. I just like the way the word sounded, but truthfully, <laughs> I love, you know, I love the idea of, you know, slam poetry and I love um, stories. And so I began writing a story just about, you know, I'm a New York guy and start, you know, writing about the history of New York over the last hundred years and just sort of using old family folklore that I'd heard and trying to turn these into poems and sort of lengthy tales about the city wow. that, uh, you know, is no longer there. I've written about 200 pages of this. It might not ever see the light of day. You know, but and hopefully it won't for everybody's eyes. But for me, it's this incredible writing exercise, man, because I'm constantly um, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising the muscles. So when I step into a session, I'm quick and I need that because, you know, writers are great. I, 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 I'm blessed to work with incredible talents. So I have to be able to hold my own every day of the week. And that's like a professional athlete. So it's akin to it. Yeah. It, and people don't, you know, a lot of people have the misconception that, oh, once you write a hit, you know what you're doing and you keep doing it. But it's really is a day. If you want to stay current, if you want to keep staying inspired to write, you have to keep you have to keep working it just as hard as you did when when you started. You know, it's it's a it's a lifetime kind of trade that you're you're working it's at. like you know it's a misnomer that you know you you enter this business and you, and you believe that um things progress at a logical slow pace but they don't music moves at the speed of light and trends change oh, yeah. in a second and you know right now a lot of it's sonics but it's also in the way songs are written right now i think more songs are mm -hmm. fragments that are strewn together and frankenstein together in different ways that didn't exist before and even though I'm a traditionalist and I really can sit down and write my own song and feel pretty confident in my output, I am a collaborator. And a collaboration is really, collaboration has been king for me. A collaboration has really given me a career to be able to do this. So I want to stay up on why things are working, why songs connect. And yeah. that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm going to pander in any way, shape or form. But if I understand, if I learn something, I can unlearn it. But at least I have the knowledge of why music is evolving and how and all that. Yeah. I think a lot of songwriters, they, they're willing to study the craft. Well, they don't want to study co-writing. And co-writing, I know that you know, is probably the biggest skill or you know, just collaboration in general, whether you're writing or producing or whatever you're doing. It's probably the most important skill in the music business. I wouldn't, I mean, well, would you agree with that? I mean, to me, um, when you're like four or five, you go to preschool, right? And they set you up and they're trying to see how you can collaborate with other kids, right? And they put you in this little yeah. pen and they're watching you. Man, your whole life is collaboration. It gets to a point where it becomes speed dating. Songwriting is speed dating right? Co-writing is speed yeah. dating. And you have a very limited window to make an impression on somebody, to feel each other out, feel the energy, and then create art together. That's not an easy ask. So um, to develop the skills, there's so many subtleties that you have to be able to read. You're a therapist on some days. Other days, you're going to carry the entire 
load on your back creatively because somebody else might not have it. Other days, you're somewhat of a passive participant. You know, I wrote a song called Marry Me with Train. And, you know, Pat Magner, uh, Pat Monahan um, completely carried the song. He's an incredible lyricist, you know. I got a free ride as far as I'm concerned. It wasn't, it really wasn't indigenous to my writing. But, you know, he carried us. Different situations call for different things. And collaboration to me in the music business is king because at the end of the day, once the song is finished, you, you everything is a collaboration between management, artist, label, blah, blah, blah. It's like, a, this is not turf wars. Like we all are one united front to get a, a, a song actually heard, which is, you know, it's, a, it's climbing a mountain. So you really, you need to understand how to work with others, how to read a room. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of skill sets, which I discuss in my book. 21 hit wonder yeah. flopping my way to the top of the charts. Matt Holt, Ben Bella books in stores now. There it is. Look at that there guy. I've never looked better than it's on that beautiful. cover. That's my best feature. <laughs> By the way, I'm not normally, can I just say something? I am not this pasty yeah. and I'm not this puffy. My phone, this, this, this computer and the lighting is doing very weird things to me. But I just want to tell you, I'm actually a very sexy man. It's just, it's, oh. you're just not seeing it. I can tell. I'm no, close. I mean, you can't hide it. Yeah. I mean, the lighting's not perfect, but you can't hide Clay, it. Clay, I have to tell you something. You, you <laughs> have like, you know, you have that like Martha Stewart lighting. You just look like, you just look like a glorious man. I, I, I just, I don't know. I'm looking at myself. And I feel like, all right, man, this guy, this guy needs some vitamins, but I promise you it doesn't look like this in the mirror. So, <laughs> Can I say one final thing about the book before I go? One final thing about the book. Yeah. Um, so, songwriters. One thing I'd say. Um, this is the only book you ever need to read. Um, but now let me tell you why. Uh, because I wrote it over seven years and it is dripping in warts and exposed cuts and failures. And it is, it is a book, if you are looking for something that isn't glossy, where you really discuss what it is like to actually do this for a living, to get in a room with a different person every day that we can try to create art, I delve into it. And I think there's... There's something to that, you know. You can go to buy spare at the bookstore. You you know you can do Prince Prince Harry if that's your thing. But I'm telling you, I prefer my book. I wrote it myself. There's no ghostwriters. There's no co-writer co-writers. There's no veneers, and nice. it is really me against the world. And most importantly, every penny of the book from my end goes to a charity called Musicians on Call. I didn't take an advance for it, and I am on a book tour right now. Come and see me. I've done uh, 35 dates so far, and I'm traversing the U.S. on my own dime, speaking at colleges and universities. I've hit 32 universities, and I guess like, because we've done like five ticketed events, and every bit of it goes to charity. And I'm just trying to um, hit people, the musicians on call, this incredible organization that brings music bedside to patients at hospitals I'm very involved in. And, um, in the, and I'm hoping to like sort of enlighten the youth and just say, Look, look at this face. Look at this doughy face with these strange features. If this guy could actually do this for a living, so can you. Um, you're going to face 10,000 rejections, 10,000 no's as a writer. Every day is a, a rejection, and you will power through it when you read my book. My work is done. Oh, man. That's beautiful. And I, you know, my copy just came um, a couple of days ago, and I've read the first four chapters. And let me tell you, I can't wait to read the rest of it. It's a really good read. Thanks, brother. And I can just, I can just tell. I'm glad to hear that you wrote it yourself. And and I could tell, like it has a voice, you know, the, a unique voice to it. And it, I'm glad to hear that because I was wondering. I was like, this really sounds like this must be Sam. I mean, it's, it's just it's really well written. Thanks, man. I mean, I did have seven years, so if I didn't nail it, I'm not much of a writer. 
But, well, <laughs> you know, I've read so all I do are read uh, entertainment bios, right? I read, you know, any music book, I devour it. And, you know, if there's a film book, I devour it. TV books, I devour it. I'm just obsessed with this stuff because it's, uh, it's all I have. I'm just sort of a, a dork who likes, you know, pop, pop cultural stuff through, throughout the decades. And I would say the bulk of them, there's like a hand nudging it, which is fine. It's just a different thing. But sometimes it, it sort of um, takes a voice that's specific and neuters it. And I think it's imperative sometimes to really hear it like unfiltered, man. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit of an unfiltered cat, and I, you know, for better or worse, but you know, I'm real and I do keep it real. And I, I, I can go to bed at night saying, all right, this is me. This is who I am. This is why I do this every day. So I don't know, man, but look, thank you, man. I love look, songwriters. You're my tribe. I'm honored to do this. You're honored to do it. It's the greatest life in the world. And, you know, if I ever get to meet you, give me a pound or a hug and God bless you. Today's episode was brought to you by Sweetwater Music. It's where I've gotten all my gear for the last 15 years. Their customer service is second to none. I can vouch for that. So check out Sweetwater. Cheers, y'all.